Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Eating disorders, are they common? Is it something that women are more susceptible to than, than young boys? How does this affect people as they get older in life? And could it really have major effects on someone's health status as they grow older? Well, there's a lot of questions that I have about eating disorders, and our next guest is going to help enlighten us about the difference between these particular types of problems and what can be best done to help them. Dr. Steve Ornstein is a consulting psychologist, clinical neuropsychologist here in the islands since, boy, a long time, 1982. And he's here today because he helped launch an eating disorders treatment program that was really revolutionary called IPONO, the first intensive outpatient treatment program really in the world and in conjunction with his colleague Dr. Anita Johnston has really helped make this a prominent feature of what we have to offer people here in the islands who might be suffering from an eating disorder. As always, our show is your show, and as we talk today, if you've ever had an eating disorder or if you have recovered from one or if you have a loved one who has had one and you've witnessed them having difficulties and seen them suffer, we'd love to get your firsthand experience and sort of share your knowledge so that we can help other people along the way. You can always join us. 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. Dr. Steve, my pleasure. Welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, you put a lot of time and effort for many, many years into helping people deal with the diagnosis and the treatment of eating disorders. What are the most common, when I think eating disorders, I think one thing. I think, oh, anorexia. And you can always tell because someone gets incredibly skinny. And I remember a a girlfriend in high school who had that happen. And she came back after a summer break, looked totally different, and then left for treatment. So my thought on eating disorders is fairly naive, and I just think of what potentially might be the most severe one, anorexia. But that's not the most common eating disorder. What is and how is it defined? Well, you're right. Uh, Anorexia is a a bad problem, but it is not nearly the most common eating disorder. The most common eating disorder is what we call binge eating disorder, which uh, statistics show affects as many as 3.5% of all women and about 1.5% of all men in the country, and that at any one point in time, there are hundreds of thousands, if not several million people suffering with binge eating disorder in the country. So it's really quite a common problem. Now, this isn't just that, like, you know, I picked out Friday night and I ate all the Ben and Jerry's ice cream. (laughs) I mean, it's a little bit more than that, although I may regret my life Saturday morning when I don't feel so good. This is a psychological issue. This is not just somebody who has too many calories on a Friday or Saturday There's something else going on here. How would you define binge eating disorder? Absolutely. Um, And and I'll also say that everyone now and then binge eats. We even have institutionalized days of binge eating. Oh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Sure. I mean, Super Bowl, eat what you want, everybody. Right. I I find it interesting that in the United States, a lot of our holidays center around food. I mean, we almost encourage this celebration of food. Christmas, Fourth of July, Labor Day, everybody have food, picnic, et cetera. 
So there are certain times when it's pretty normal. Well, it also does speak to the fact that food takes on symbolic meaning in our culture. We don't simply eat to satisfy uh, a physical hunger. We eat to celebrate life. We might also eat to avoid life and difficult feelings that occur in life. And then you're getting into the area of an eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is characterized by people engaging in a kind of compulsive uh, uh, binge eating, where they're eating a lot of food in a short period of time. It's often secretive, and it's followed by feelings of real shame and depression, and people feel like they're really out of control. And that is very different than what people have on Thanksgiving or some other kind of holiday. People don't have that out-of-control feeling, and they're typically it's not followed by intense feelings of shame and depression. So you mentioned it's sort of a compulsive yes. habit so that if you were to go somewhere and say, I'm going to go buy all this food and secretly eat it in my car and then I'm just going to throw out all the trash so no one can see it and then mm-hmm. I go through this cycle of feeling really horrible about myself because yep. I've done it and then it doesn't stop me from doing the same thing again, would that qualify as a binge eating disorder, or are there some psychological components that have to be included? Do you have to feel guilty? What if you just feel happy and you tell everybody, guess what I just ate? That was delicious. I mean, is there some sort of an element where there's a regretful feeling or a depression associated absolutely. with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that's one of the hallmarks of it, is that this leads to people feeling really, really awful about themselves. And there's also the quality that they're feeling out of control. What you've described does happen. People will go out and purposefully buy food to binge on. But the binge eater, the person with the disorder, does this frequently, does this in an out-of-control way. And again, it's followed by intense feelings of shame and guilt and depression, which are really, really hurtful to someone's self-esteem. And it also can render them dysfunctional. People will miss work. People will destroy relationships. People will fail in school. People will become sometimes even suicidally depressed because of their feeling of being out of control with eating. And of course, it can lead to very rapid weight gain, which can have medical consequences that can be quite serious. Now, if somebody was identified as having a binge eating disorder. Is there such a thing as like a binge exerciser? If somebody went ahead and they, you know, ate all the cookies and then they said, I feel really bad about myself. I ate all the cookies. I'm going to go walk for five miles. So could you have a binge eating disorder and be normal weight? Oh, absolutely. But what you've described begins to get more into the area of bulimia where the, uh, massive consumption of food is followed by some effort to rid the body of those excess calories. So we tend to think of bulimia, I think, as self-induced vomiting. That's where it's most common, but people will over-exercise or abuse laxatives as a way of purging themselves of the massive consumption of food. What is the difference then between binge eating and bulimia on the front end? Is there a difference in the consumption of food the psychological feelings about the food. It sounds to me like the difference might just be binge eaters don't purge themselves and bulimics do. Am I simplifying that too much? Um, you're not simplifying it too much. That's pretty much how it looks on a, you know, clinically, is that binge eaters will binge without purging and bulimic people will binge and then purge. And the same amount of calories could be consumed. Is there any difference... Could someone be considered bulimic if they just 
ate a whole bunch of calories and purged, or even if they ate regular calories amounts and purged? Uh, yes. I think the purging behavior is really what characterizes bulimia. Um, many times, uh, whereas with binge eaters, you do tend to see people gain a lot of weight from it. I mean, that would make sense. With bulimics, you don't necessarily see that. Many of them are of normal weight. Some of them are above normal weight. Some of them are below normal weight. And there's all kinds of different purging behaviors that they might engage in. So what are some of the ways that someone who might identify themselves as a potential binge eater, what what can they do to identify, hey, am I in this category or not? And what sort of help do they need? Okay, well, I mean, one of the things is that when somebody is having uh, this kind of problem, they usually do know it. They know that there's something wrong, you know. Um, there's that self-awareness to say, absolutely. I shouldn't be doing this, yeah. as opposed to a denial. It's, I know it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's very hard to deny when you see, you know, let's say uh, boxes and wrappers in front of you. You know that you've consumed that food. You can feel it in your body. Um, so uh, people are aware that they have a problem. But when it comes to uh, – unlike one of the differences between binge eating and bulimia, for example, is that binge eaters often feel like their problem is that they just eat too much and what they need to do is go on a diet because it hasn't been really identified as an eating disorder. In fact, binge eating disorder wasn't recognized by the American Psychiatric Association as a bona fide psychiatric illness until relatively very recently, whereas anorexia and bulimia, which is what I think most people think of when they think of eating disorders, have been around for a long time. When we're talking about what we, if somebody self-identifies and says, I think I'm a binge eater. Yeah. What could they do to get help? I mean, you, you've you identified, you've actually created this program, IPONO, right. to help people to identify what would help them. You said a binge eater may just think the only problem is, I just need to go on a diet, when in fact there's some deeper issue underneath that. How do we, how does the mm -hmm. person identify, or how would you, as their treating psychologist, identify what the issue is that's giving them this compulsive behavior. Okay, well, one of the things is that the National Eating Disorders Association estimates that as many as 30 to 40% of all people that seek some kind of weight loss help have a diagnosable eating disorder. 30? 30 to 40%. To 40%. Yes. And we have a huge diet industry, which I've heard the figures of at least 10 billions of dollars a year are spent on diets. And diets really don't work. And a lot of people that have a binge eating disorder problem, they'll go on a diet, they'll lose some weight, they'll start binging again because the binging part of it is a psychological illness. It's not, people are not eating in this compulsive way because they're hungry. They're eating because they're trying to find a way to deal with emotional distress. That's really what's underlying it all. So to get back to what you asked about seeking help, a person that has an eating disorder has an emotional problem, has a psychological disorder, and they need that kind of help. They need counseling. They need therapy. They may or may not need some medication, group support, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of people say they're a, quote, stress eater. When I get stressed, I eat. Mm -hmm. How does that differentiate between a binge eater or someone who has this psychological component that's underlying it? Well, so I think stress eating, again, it's like the Thanksgiving. I mean, that happens. People do that, and it's occasional. 
and people are aware that they're stress eating and they don't necessarily feel like they're really out of control. When somebody has a disorder, they feel like they're really out of control. All right, we've got a caller on the line. We have Aloy calling in from Maui. Welcome to The Body Show. Yes, good afternoon, doctors. Uh, uh, my question it relates in terms of um, in regards to binge eating. And I wanted to know if there's a physiologic response that the body tells, you know, I guess, tells a person that, that, that they need to eat, but it is basically because there's, there's a defic- deficiency instead of a psychological issue. Do you mean like a nutritional deficiency? Yes. And, you know, because I, I, I think pica is recognizable in, in pregnancy as well as uh, autism. Okay. Why, what if there is a there is a, a body's need for a specific nutrient, and it's just sending these signals to you know of of hunger, but ultimately is is just because the body is looking for for a specific nutrient that it's deficient on. It's an interesting question. Yes, it is, and the body certainly does send out hunger signals. And people with eating disorders tend not to pay attention to those physical hunger signals. And um, what you're asking about with pregnancy or somebody with some kind of a mineral deficiency, I would not necessarily think of such situations as being eating disorders problems. Those are other kinds of problems. It's a great question, though. You know, and Aloy brings up a really interesting uh, corollary to that, which is, you know, in a lot of cases we've seen people – They've done PET imaging. They've done these positive mm-hmm. uh, emission tomograms that look at blood flow to the brain in different areas. And they found that for some people, eating chocolate highlights the same gratitude, uh, wonderful dopamine-enriched section of your brain mm-hmm. that is in that is associated with happiness as doing other things. Yes. They've even they've even said certain illicit substances activate the same area of the brain, yes. the pleasure center, and they give people this sense of and and I don't want to call it a high per se, um, but it's this highlighted amount of blood flow to an area of the brain that we can identify. So mm-hmm. some people they eat chocolate, they get the same response as other people who might have mm-hmm. some other type of some other type of substance. Have we found that there is any neurochemistry behind binge eating other than the psychological potential change in brain chemistry that we might be able to detect in other people who have psychological problems, whether it be depression or suicidal tendencies? Have we found anything like that? Have we looked? Well, the rush of dopamine that you're describing is part of what happens with any kind of addictive behavior, whether we're talking about illicit substances or alcohol or binge eating. Um, People do get, go through a physiological change in their brain chemistry, and that is very rewarding. Same thing that will happen with drugs, though, will happen with food problems, which is that eventually those rushes of dopamine do not bring the same kind of pleasurable responses they once did, so people have to do it more and more and more and more. In that when we look at that, you know, some of the, we talked a little bit about diets earlier. And one of the things that I found very curious is that there's a medication out there right now, Contrave, which includes naltrexone, which has traditionally been used for people who have an opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. And so now it's included in a pill that is supposed to stop the pleasure center of someone's brain from getting so excited or creating this kind of 
this this gravitation towards food. And it's now like a commercially available diet pill. And it made me think, is food getting people that excited that they need now Trexone to block the response? <laughs> I mean, and this is not for binge eaters. This is just for the general population. It's sort of a mood enhancing medicine combined with now Trexone. And this is a combination medicine. And it just makes me wonder, are we looking at this from the right perspective? Has it been a psychological problem all along? Is What would be the connection between blocking the pleasure center of your brain and not overeating? Well, uh, if you ask an eating disorders expert, somebody of which been in the someone field, that you are, yes, thank you, uh, they would say it's been a psychological problem all along. And, uh, you know, but drug problems are psychological problems also. They just manifest in that kind of way, and then the drug itself becomes a problem, just like the eating itself becomes a problem. Um, people that have eating disorders have psychological problems. What we find with people is that these are people who feel powerless in their lives, have trouble setting boundaries with other people, have emotional issues that they've never resolved that have to do with their families. Many of them have a history of some kind of se uh, sexual or physical or emotional abuse. Uh, these are people that are struggling with things that they have not been able to control in any healthy way. And using food as a way of sort of solving their uh, distress does serve them in the same way that drugs can help somebody to escape from distressing feelings. Well, and then I look at some of the new studies that are going on with what's considered to be the gut microbiome. So mm -hmm. this is the bacteria that normally are in our body that help us to digest foods. They're generally in the colon or in the small intestines. Yeah. And there are some new theories looking at the fact that depending on what bacteria are in your body, they could potentially be associated with craving certain types of things in your diet, mm -hmm. usually high fat things or high sugar things mm -hmm. and or, you know, maybe salt things. So that potentially looking at it from the perspective of the bacteria that normally are in the gut, doing some kind of alteration to that different bacteria percentage could actually alter behavior. Oh, it certainly might. I mean, um, We've always believed in our IPONO system in a multimodal approach, that you bring the medical science and you bring the psychological work together as well as behavioral change. I mean, I think what you're describing might be wind up being very useful in treatment. Um, I for think some individuals. For some individuals, but I mean, it's, it's very early stage. We, we really don't know that yet. All right. Well, this is an enlightening discussion. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Steve Ornstein. He is the founder and a clinical neuropsychologist of the IPONO Intensive Outpatient Program for the Treatment of Eating Disorders right here in Honolulu. And when we come back, we are going to talk some more about different eating disorders, how to identify if you or someone you love has this, and what sort of steps you can take to address some of the underlying issues that could have caused you to to manifest this problem as eating in the first place. As always, our show is your show, and you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Piano virtuoso Mickey Aoki interprets magically, said Ensemble Magazine. Hear for yourself as she performs on the Atherton Studios' magnificent Bosendorfer Grand Piano on the evening of Saturday the 25th. 
Reserve your seats at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Clinic and Hospital. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Steve Ornstein, and today we're talking about eating disorders. What are some of the ways to identify if you have one, and what are some of the options that you have to get help? Now, Dr. Steve, we talked earlier with Eloy from Maui, and he was wondering, is there a basis by which someone might crave a particular nutrient? I remember I have a, I have a friend from from college who decided to just eat carrots. Like, I don't know what the deal was. She was just eating carrots. She got herself a little orange after a while. Um, But clearly this was a manifestation of some other things going on in her life. But she just chose carrots. That was just her, her decision. And in some cases, a lot of people feel like, you know, boy, I'm really craving salad or broccoli or whatever it might be. There might be a nutrient associated with a need that your body may be experiencing. But we're not necessarily talking about people who just, you know, crave a certain vegetable. We're kind of talking about people who have an underlying psychological issue. So if you happen to eat food and love it, that doesn't mean you have an eating disorder. But if you're taking it beyond what would be considered appropriate, you mentioned binge eating might be this secretive amount, this feeling bad about yourself afterwards, this, this underlying psychological illness that could be addressed, what are some of the techniques that IPONO teaches people to consider when they're identified as a binge eater and they need some help trying to stop it? Well, um, I I think you make a a good point. Again, I think it's worth uh, mentioning that people who engage in occasional food binges don't necessarily have an eating disorder. People who have gained a few pounds over the holidays, don't. that doesn't mean you have an eating disorder. Uh, these, When you have an eating disorder, you're talking about something where you feel out of control and there's a compulsive kind of quality to it. But y- your friend who was eating only carrots, there is a sort of subcategory of eating disorders that we call orth- orthorexia, which describes people that become fanatical about health foods and they won't touch anything that has salt in it or won't touch anything that has a preservative in it. Boy, aren't they fanatical. missing out, I'll tell you. Well, well, we see but with eating disorders, we're talking, this is very, very important, Dr. Kozak, is that these are people whose lives have become dysfunctional as a result of this. And that's the key, Yeah, is that some element of their life yeah. has been dramatically affected, whether their own body image, their personal relationships, their job, their employment, whatever it might be. Yes. Some area of life has become dysfunctional. Yes. So what can be done to help them? Well, therapy is what can be done. And fortunately, many people who have eating disorders, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating or one of the variations of the problem can be helped with treatment. Um, It's not a 100% guarantee treatment. Um, With IPONO, we have had two independent studies done which have shown 90% improvement in symptoms. Uh, Sometimes it it can take a long time. With, let's say, milder cases, some people can resolve their problems within a few months. 
With other people, it might take a couple of years. With other people, it's even a longer haul than that. Anorexia is a, can be a particularly difficult problem to treat. Anorexia can start at a relatively young age, in the early teens, and there are some people that stay anorexic and remain somewhat functional well into adulthood. So we always think of anorexia as kind of the worst-case scenario. Yes. And there's a lot of people usually that, that start with these symptoms when they're younger. Yes. But it doesn't always have to be when you're younger. Could you develop something like anorexia midlife? Well, it's happened. We have seen such cases. There, there may be some, you know, to get back a little bit into the, into the medical, the physiological, the biological aspects, we see that there may be some correlation between rushes of hormonal change and the development of eating disorders. Basically, we see spikes in incident rates in eating disorders right around um, uh, in, in adolescence and then pregnancy and then in perimenopause in women. So there really could be this hormonal Absolutely. connection that... Absolutely. Whether it's that the hormones help to make people more aware of buried feelings, which I, uh, it's a commonly common thing we've seen with women, we're not really sure, but we do know that there's a spike in incidence rates around those times of life. How about for men as well? With men, you know, the research is and our experience is much less significant because men, first of all, don't come in for treatment with eating disorders. It is wrong for the general public, it's wrong for men to think that only women get eating disorders or that only white middle-class women get eating disorders. That is not true. Men do develop eating disorders. And people of all races, sizes, and backgrounds develop eating disorders. That much we know. But men, I think, you know, can be shy about presenting themselves for treatment for these problems because it's perceived to be a woman's problem. And I think the same thing we, we would see, uh, although men don't necessarily go into perimenopause and they don't get pregnant, they do go through adolescence and they do go through early adulthood and other life stages, which are probably associated with hormonal changes, which also can bring about um, eating disorders. So would it be fair to say that it's more common in adolescence or more identifiable in adolescence? I'd say both. Um, you know, the thing about anorexia nervosa, now we haven't really said much about that. Anorexia is it's quite different in terms of the behaviors from binge eating because an anorexic will starve themselves. And this can result in rapid and extreme weight loss, which can be life-threatening. One of the things about anorexia nervosa, which does affect disproportionately females compared to males, is that it is the most significant killer of young women between the ages of 15 to 24. Twelve times as many young women and girls die from complications of anorexia than from anything else in that age group. So it's really quite a significant problem, and it is the most lethal of all the psychiatric illnesses. It just strikes me that, you know, our naive conception that it's all based on society and these perfect images in magazines, the desire to be perfect. That doesn't seem to explain the lethality of anorexia oh, nervosa. No. And it seems like there must be some other underlying biochemical issue that results in this manifestation of people's behavior. 
There are no doubt some biochemical issues of which we are not yet fully knowledgeable. There are family issues. Most of the time when we meet young women who are anorexic, there's some kind of eating disorder in the family, like the mother, the grandmother, the father has overemphasized food issues in life. So there are family issues that are involved. But when you talk about the uh, seeing the image in the magazines, that is probably the single thing that most distinguishes why women develop these problems and men don't. Women are under far greater pressure than men in terms of their body image. You know, I've never met a man who worries himself sick over having gained three or four pounds while women, young women will do that. And it's very, very sad to see. And and they are very deeply influenced, of course, by images and our cultural images, our cultural norms. 50, 60, 70 years ago, the cultural norm for women, the greatest paragon of beauty was Marilyn Monroe. And if you look at Marilyn Monroe, by today's standards, she would actually be considered chubby. Which, again, it sort of it's crazy. amazes me that it's crazy. we add on that the extra pressure of social media yep. and pictures that can be photoshopped, etc. Yep. And there's this whole other element of societal pressure that is just being thrust upon all of the young women in society today. And it's almost as if because we are perpetuating that we're we're making it worse for ourselves. Oh, yeah. And I think many times parents lay that on their children. I mean, it's not that they're being bad parents, not at all. Loving parents who are well-meaning inadvertently will put pressure on their children to look a certain way or perform to a certain level, which is just not realistic. So when you see someone in your clinic that has anorexia nervosa, yeah. that often, I would think... And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I would think often that requires inpatient type of treatment. Well, um, an anorexic will require inpatient hospitalization if she has gotten to the point where her very health, you know, her her life is being compromised by her weight loss. So medical complications, whether yeah. it be heart rhythm issues or yes. kidney issues Absolutely. or stomach issues, some yes. kind of medical condition yes. that would result in inpatient hospitalization. Yes, because when somebody is medically compromised to that extent, they can't make use of behavioral health intervention anyway. They are They don't have their full consciousness. They're dying, actually. So they need to go into the hospital. Sometimes they need to be... Uh, they, they need the weight restored to a level where they can function adequately to make them more uh, responsive to behavioral health intervention. Now, is that something that could be done at any hospital here in the islands, or is that a particular specialized aspect of care that we need uh, to be in a certain center? It is specialized. Um, unfortunately, I don't know of any facility here in the islands, any hospital facility that has that kind of a program. Uh, we've had several patients who are on death's door, so to speak, and we've had to send them to the mainland all the way to Denver where there is a hospital that specializes in weight restoration of anorexics. Uh, people that do not need weight restoration, however, sometimes need residential care, which is a kind of treatment approach that is almost unique to eating disorders where a patient will come in, live in a sort of quasi-hospital setting, and get intensive therapy as well as weight restoration when their weight hasn't gotten to the point where they're really in danger. 
And would that also require being on the mainland? No. Uh, we have one. Uh, Ipono maintains a residential treatment program over on Maui. We opened three years ago. Up until that point, when we had our outpatients who were needing a higher level of care, we did have to send them to the mainland. So what are some of the elements of the outpatient treatment that is provided for those people who have anorexia? Well, um, eating disorders treatment, uh, no matter whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or even binge eating, there are similar elements that run through because there are similar psychological issues that run through them. Um, When They can be treated sometimes just on an individual outpatient basis with psychotherapy that helps address the underlying emotional issues. Um, What we believe is that that work has to be supplemented almost all the time by the work of a dietitian, And um, so that sometimes is a little difficult to coordinate on an outpatient basis. And then there's intensive outpatient treatment, which uh, usually happens several times per week where somebody is given psychotherapy, education, uh, and they, they learn skills to help them cope with life's stresses. Um, because these are people that, for whatever reason, they lack those skills. They have trouble being assertive. They have trouble saying no to things they don't want. They have trouble expressing their feelings. They have trouble telling people that they want this or they don't want that. And they feel out of control in their lives interpersonally. And so when we help restore some sense of balance to their lives socially, interpersonally, that usually helps them with their eating problems. Now, we had a a shy caller who wanted to know, you touched briefly on this earlier, is one of the potential etiologies of eating disorders sexual trauma? Yes. And are there ways to have that treated without being part of an intensive dietary nutritional program like IPONO? Uh. Sure, but I think that it would have to be treated, you know, parallel to treatment for the eating disorder. At what, what we find with our res- see our residential patients tend to be the people with the most serious illnesses. Obviously, they can't be treated on an outpatient basis, or they've failed at an outpatient level. And what we have found with our residential population is that eighty percent of the uh, of these patients have had some history of trauma, whether it's emotional, physical, or sexual, and helping to resolve that trauma has to be part of their eating disorders treatment. And so you really can't separate them. You can't separate them. You can't just treat the eating disorder without looking at the underlying issue. It honestly seems like even for your outpatient group, if you identify that somebody has an eating disorder because of some other psychological component, Mm -hmm. until you address the psychological component, all the efforts that you make on the eating disorder without addressing that. You could have people see a nutritionist, see a dietitian. It's not going to work unless you address the underlying issue. Yes, that's right. In fact, the research on like bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery, which has become quite popular, does show that people that don't clear their underlying psychological problems wind up regaining the weight. And so that's part of the evaluation for most dietary programs prior to being allowed to have bariatric mm-hmm. surgery is you have to show that you are psychologically well. Yes. That you can do this procedure, that the issue for this has been addressed in your life. Right. And yet how if someone passes that evaluation and yet has not really dealt with those psychological issues, 
they would be someone who might gain the weight back. Is there a way to identify that prior to declaring them okay for surgery? Well, um, you know, we we actually worked with Straub for several years years ago, uh, where we were evaluating and sometimes treating um, people that were looking to get the weight loss surgery at Straub. So I think that you know, if uh, uh, a, a clinic or hospital wants to take, let's say, a more enlightened approach, it would behoove them to have a person evaluated well by a psychologist who knows something about eating disorders prior to clearing them for the surgery. And not just once, maybe several different meetings. Right. Yes. Because I think right now the meeting might just be part of a part right. of a dietary program. Might be once, mm-hmm. might be twice. May not be with someone who has a specialty in eating disorders. Right. It might be kind of superficial. And and again, there's a lot of people who have a kind of level of denial about their problem, especially binge eaters, because there's been so much media attention over so many decades about dieting that if you if you eat too much, you need to go on a diet. And you hear very little if you look at Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig or Atkins Diet or any number of systems that come down the pike. There's very little to no talk about underlying psychological pressures that might be uh, compelling people to eat too much. You know, it makes me wonder if the Ornish program, which is identified as a system that helps people who have cardiovascular disease, They have a component with that program that looks at group support and stress management, the other two areas being exercise and nutritional Mm -hmm. counseling. It may be that part of the success of that program has to do with that group support and that stress management component. Absolutely. I mean, Dean Ornish was a great pioneer, and he recognized very early on that stress was a major factor for a lot of people in heart disease. So he took it upon himself to create a problem, uh, to create a program, which was reflective of that point of view. So meditation, relaxation has always been part of that, and I think that such care of the soul, if I can use that expression, really ought to be a part of any kind of change program for people because people use food, people use other things as a way of coping, and if they don't develop new ways of coping with the same old stresses. They're going to go back to the same They're going to go right back patterns. to where they were. Right. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Steve Ornstein. And today we're talking about eating disorders. If you or a loved one has suffered from this, or if you wonder if you might have it yourself, you can always join our conversation, 941-3689. Toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about the different types of eating disorders, what would qualify as one particular type versus another, and really the underlying issues and how this can be addressed so that someone who might be concerned that they or a loved one is suffering from this can identify where the best location is to get help. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. For every dollar that people put into their retirement accounts, they take 40 cents out early. That's a quite striking amount of leakage, especially when many people are not saving enough for retirement in the first place. I'm Kai Rizdal, the retirement leakage problem next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, right after The Body Show. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, 
which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Aloha and welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Steve Ornstein. And today we're talking about eating disorders and what qualifies or classifies as an eating disorder and what are some of the mainstays of treatment for these conditions. Now, earlier in the show, we talked a little bit about binge eating. We've talked about anorexia. We've talked about how these sorts of disorders can cause some type of dysfunction in your life, whether it be in your personal relationships, in your ability to maintain and have a job, in any particular area, that these things are identified as serious conditions that could potentially cause trouble. Now, we haven't talked as much about bulimia, but it's very somewhat similar to binge eating, except for the idea of purging. What would make someone, is there a biochemical basis like we think there might be or hormonal basis for some of these other conditions that is also associated with bulimia? Well, there certainly may be because typically bulimia will rear its head, so to speak, in uh, mid to late adolescence. Lots of times when a young woman goes off to college for the first time, that's when she'll first start showing signs of bulimia. So it's obviously associated with certain kinds of changes hormonally as well as socially. What would classify someone as bulimic? We sort of have the definition of the secretive eater, the binge eater, mm-hmm. the compulsive eater, who then feels bad about themselves or has some sort of consequence psychologically that is that is negative on how they feel. What would be the difference with bulimia? Is it the similar process? It is. They're all similar. There's a kind of a red thread that runs through all of them. But bulimia is characterized by the purging behavior, typically food binges, just like a uh, somebody with uh, com- any other kind of compulsive eating disorder would do, but then they purge, often with self-induced vomiting, abusive laxatives, or exercise, and they feel out of control. We, for example, treat people at the residential level sometimes that do these binge purge episodes six or eight times every single day. Every single day? Every day. Yes. How can you manage to live your life? Well, you can't. That's the whole problem. And not only can consider, you know, this is not really uh, being flip. Consider the costs. People have to buy this food. So there's so it leads to family problems. You have like the daughter raiding the family refrigerator and eating half of the refrigerator, then purging. And there's no food left for other people in the family. And this happens over and over and over again. And it affects everybody, essentially. It affects everybody. It affects the family. Yes. All right. We've got Diane on the phone from the Big Island. Diane, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Um, thanks. Um, I'm in my late 60s, and I've always uh, hovered around 120 pounds, and uh, my three family, nuclear family, were all, um, you know, even slightly overweight. Um, and about uh, in February of 2015, I started taking Wellbutrin, and slowly and immediately I've dropped down to 89 pounds, and I've been hovering at around 89 pounds um, since then. And I am um, developing, uh, 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 I I like to eat, for a while, I wasn't interested in eating, and I actually had uh, some physical problems cooking and stuff, which uh, kind of got me out of preparing food. Um, 
But um, increasingly, my appetite is has been growing, and and I've been eating more. But I am uh, suddenly really sort of disinterested in food. It's it's like a hassle. I don't want to do it. I do it because I know that my body needs it. But I don't eat much at a time, and um, I don't even though I am. I mean, and I'm eating. I, confessed sugar and ice cream and stuff like that, as well as trying to eat a, you know, healthy diet. But um, I, I continue not to gain weight, and I continue not to be so interested in food. Now, maybe if there were a good cook around or I could afford restaurants, it would be different. But not knowing much about anorexia, I'm just wondering if if there's any chance that I might be developing some kind of... Um, I, I don't know, uh, aversion to food or... Well, Diane, it's a great question. And the first thing I think of is, you know, the medication, Wellbutrin. It's actually in one of the new diet pills in combination with yes. another medicine because of the fact that it may result in people losing weight or becoming disinterested in food. Wait, I, I, I'm sorry, doctor, you, you said... Uh, the Wellbutrin. I'm, I'm not taking a diet pill. It's just the Wellbutrin. Exactly. For- but it's actually one of the ingredients in some of the diet pills because of the potential side effect of not having an interest in food. So you're not using it for that reason. I absolutely agree. This may be a medicine side effect. Interesting question, Dr. Steve. How would you know the difference? It- It is. Well, first of all, one of the hallmarks of anorexia is an intense fear of gaining weight. And I don't, don't, yeah, I don't, Diane, I don't hear that you're expressing an intense fear of gaining weight. Um, I think Dr. Kozak has um, pointed out something really important. Wellbutrin is considered what we think of as an activating kind of antidepressant. We don't use that generally with people with eating disorders, even people that have problems with depression, because it can affect appetite the way it does and create some sort of artificial uh, weight loss. Um, if you if you're anorexic, you, one of the reasons, one of the things that goes through your mind is you have an intense fear of gaining weight, and you don't seem to have that. So I wouldn't think that you have an eating disorder. Um, but I would perhaps suggest that you speak with your doctor about the Wellbutrin because it might be, you might be on too much medication or it might be the wrong medication for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, we have gone through a series of antidepressants and unfortunately it is the one that seems to work. But, um, and I, I do have other friends that have taken it. They've dropped weight, but they have not dropped as much as I have and have not kept it off for as long as I have. So, um, but okay, so uh, I, I, w- I won't worry about it. And I guess I guess the thing to do would to be to look at the Wellbutrin. Well, sure, Diane. And the other thing to do is talk with your doctor, make sure that they're monitoring you so medically the rest of you is healthy. Make sure your blood pressure is okay, you're getting in enough nutrition, your protein levels in your body are okay, your sugar's not too low, your cholesterol is good. So checking in to see your primary care provider will help to make sure the rest of your body is okay. And then you can work on whether or not this is a potential side effect of Wellbutrin. What are some of the other medications that could be out there that might actually help you? So, you know, it's one of those things sometimes 
we don't realize that there's a whole list of side effects to medicines that we take. Even supplements that we take can have particular side effects. And what you experience in your body might be totally different than what someone else experiences in their body. And whenever I hear about people taking any prescription medicine, my first thought is make sure it's not the medication because it might be a side effect or a combination effect of different medicines. And we've all got to think about that. Yeah, I would also add that the psychiatric problem that we're talking about here is formally called anorexia nervosa, which translates as loss of appetite due to nerves. Uh, anorexia, which is loss of appetite, can occur from other kinds of medical problems. Sure, severe illness. Yes. You know, people in hospitals for a prolonged yes. period of time may lose their sense of taste, may lose an appetite. Right. If you get a bad pneumonia, you can wind up losing an appetite. Right. So you're right, there's, there's a particular eating disorder condition, and then there's the general idea, hey, I have no no appetite, and that technically in the medical world is called anorexia. anorexia. Yep. All right. We've got another caller. We've got Misty on the line from the Big Island. Misty, welcome to The Body Show. Good afternoon, doctors. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm wondering if you both could talk about some resources, um, maybe not uh, both on the island and perhaps uh, on the Internet for um family members or friends of uh, people suffering from eating disorders and how we can be supportive um, to the people we love so that, you know, we, they don't destroy themselves and that they know, you know, they're not in this alone. Sure. That's a, that's a great question, Misty. And I really appreciate you asking it because oftentimes family members really don't know what to do and then they're not exactly. knowing what to do, even though they're very loving and caring, they wind up saying and doing the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ipono runs a treatment program, an outpatient treatment program over on the Big Island, so you might mm-hmm. contact them. Um, you might also want to look into the National Eating Disorders Association. They can be so reached they at. Might have literature. Um, yes, there. yes. They can be reached at 800 931 2237. And they're also on the internet at www.nationaleatingdisorders.org. And that's a really good point. You know, Misty brought up the thought of, and you brought up the thought of what can you say that would be supportive. And one of the first things I could think of that would not be supportive is someone says, you know, I just... I just feel as though I'm so afraid of gaining weight. And family member says, well, you're skinny enough already. I don't know what Mm -hmm. your problem is. Like negating their feelings or thoughts would be one of the first, like, don't do it. No-nos. And that happens innocently. Sure. Yeah. Just in a side note that they just say, hey, you know what? Hey, maybe this is something that, you know, I wish I had or something along those lines. All right. We've got another caller on the line. We have Gary on the line from Kona. Gary, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. appreciate taking my call. Um, yeah, the question I had has to do with um, just uh, you know I'm I'm in my uh, 66 and I've uh, I'm five six and I weigh um, 250 pounds and I guess I'm officially considered obese at that uh, height and weight and I'm just I, my my question I suppose is is just um, when is surgery an option for someone in my situation? Does the uh, the health benefits from uh, you know losing fifty pounds, sixty pounds, does that outweigh the risk of of actually getting um, you know going in and having the uh, uh, the surgery done? 
Really good question. If you don't mind me asking you, Gary, do you have any other conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol? Uh, my blood pressure is good. My cholesterol, I take um, medication for, and I am diabetic. I don't take insulin. It's you know type type one. Sure, it's it's sure type two diabetes, and you don't take insulin. You might be on medication. That brings up yeah, absolutely. That that's the best one to start off on. To be honest, that brings up the question, and I think uh, Dr. Steve, you talked about working with the Strawberryatric Center previously. What are the medical criteria for someone to have surgery? And that's why I asked you, Gary, not to be too personal, but there are certain medical conditions that would suggest that surgery could be potentially, and we don't always use this word, but they would actually suggest curative. And diabetes is one of those, that if you have this metabolic process going on in your body for which it has resulted in your sugars being high, the consequences of diabetes that is not well-controlled, and and you may have very well-controlled diabetes, but for those people who have not well-controlled diabetes, this particular procedure that you're talking about, I'm assuming you're talking about bariatric surgery or gastric bypass surgery, can really be significantly helpful for someone who's sugars are just too high, despite their best efforts in diet. But there's this whole other element, Dr. Steve, that, you know, when we think about people who might be interested in helping themselves medically, if they're not psychologically well, or they're not prepared for a surgery, you know, I think about people who say that eating is their comfort, and it makes them feel good. And if you take that away from them, because they've had some type of surgical procedure for their stomach, and they don't have a replacement, or they don't have a healthy Mm -hmm. alternative on how to get comfort for themselves, that that may be the person who might be set up to have consequences psychologically. That's a great point. I have also worked with numerous people over the years, uh, women especially, who have, let's say, they, they have a lot of extra weight, and they feel like their weight gives them a kind of armor. People don't bother them. Men don't bother them. People want that armor. They want to feel like they have their protections. And again, yes, you go through, undergo a surgical process where you lose weight really rapidly. It's not just weight that you're losing. It might be armor that you're losing. And who knows what else that weight represents to somebody. It's, it's, it, psychologists tend to think of everything in terms of metaphor that things are symbols. And so the size you've gotten to is symbolic. What you're eating is symbolic. So I think that, you know, what I would hope for is simply that um, surgeons that are doing these weight loss procedures are sensitive to the fact that they're not just doing something that's going to take weight off of people, that, but that they're doing something that's going to change somebody's life and the person needs to be ready for those changes and prepared to live life with a different body. And that's why programs like yours are so helpful to partner with some of these other bariatric surgery programs because it takes more than just one discussion with a psychologist to be considered well to have surgery. We've got time for one more quick caller. We have Ron on the phone from the Big Island. Ron, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I have uh, four points I'll uh, just mention real quick that... um, I've learned from my own experience. Uh, first one is I feel like people are busy and they work all the time, so food becomes their pleasure. So uh, I think, you know, from my own experience, by finding other things to enjoy, hobbies and things for pleasure, 
food became less important, and I uh, was able to lose weight from that. Uh, another one is um, the fact that it takes about 20 minutes for your stomach to tell your brain that you're full. So I think a lot of people overeat because they're, they still feel hungry while they're eating. The third one that I found in my case, like around the holidays, and I'll overeat, and I find I put on a few pounds. If I fast for one day, I find that it shrinks my stomach, and so I'm not as hungry after that. And that really helps me control my weight. And the fourth one is people who are overweight and tend to make uh, many comments to people who are what I would consider normal weight, stating that you look thin, what's wrong with you? You don't need enough. So it's kind of like a peer pressure psychological thing. So I wonder if that has anything to do with, um, you know, what you think about that having to do with other people's problems. That's a really good point, Ron. And I think, you know, one of those things that there's been out in the media recently is the fact that sometimes if you hang around with people who are of a different weight than you are, then somehow everybody regresses to the mean. So if you hang out with dieters or if you hang out with people who overeat, you may wind up feeling that pressure to do either or. And that kind of gets back to our psychological relationship with food. And I guess we have just, just a few brief minutes. Dr. Steve, what would be a good relationship if you if you have this love-hate relationship with food or with your body what would be like a simple step on how to create a more healthy relationship maybe you don't fit into an eating disorder category Mm -hmm. but what would be something that you could do to help yourself move in a healthier direction well that's that's a that's a great set of questions i mean one of the things is is that i think people that don't feel at peace with themselves in other areas of their life will tend to focus on their weight and on their body so the first thing i would say is make peace in your life look beyond your body beyond the numbers on the scale what's going on in your life how do you feel about how you're living how your relationships are, how is your work, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's probably the most important thing because underlying the problem with eating disorders almost always is a real problem with self-esteem. And self-esteem is reflected of how people feel about themselves and how they're living their life. So I'd say look at your life, not just at your waist. And so that would really be the main focus. People just need to take inventory of their life, areas where they're happy, areas where they could use some stress reduction. Yes. And as you mentioned earlier, standing up for yourself to say, I need time to take care of myself. And this is the time that I've set aside to do it. And being stern enough to stick to it, whether it be exercise or meditation or some other type of stress relief, something that helps you to enrich yourself. Very well put. All right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. I'd love to have you back again. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on Hawaii Public Radio, follow the links to The Body Show. Our guest today was Dr. Steve Ornstein from the iPono program here in Honolulu and throughout the islands. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Don't forget, next week we start 6.30 p.m. We will see you then right here on The Body Show. Thank mm-hmm. you.